The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Derek disappeared was supposed to be a happy day. His mom tells me her rambunctious eight-year-old boy was eager to get out the door. It was his turn to chop down the Christmas tree. Derek, his dad, and his grandpa headed out to the Wyneema National Forest to find a tree. The dad and grandpa split up to look for a tree. They realized Derek was missing in less than an hour. spent two years every weekend every day off searching on the mountain and they did not find anything which is why she believes Derek was abducted I know he was taken for six months before Derek disappeared she says he would wake up every night screaming from night terrors somebody is chasing him in the woods somebody um, chased him up a tree and shot him with a bow and arrow he knew he was gonna disappear changes you get by but you don't ever forget i've got derek's picture in the bedroom and i look at it every morning every night i i do pray that one day we will find out where he's at i just don't know why god won't answer us Today, I will be telling you about the disappearance of Derek Ingebretson. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. Bonanza, Oregon is located in southern Klamath County, Oregon, about 21 miles from Klamath Falls and 300 miles from Portland. The city has a total area of 0.82 square miles, and as of the 2010 census, the population was 415. The city is in a farming district and was named after the Spanish word for prosperity because of the good springs found nearby. The post office was established in 1875 and the community was founded by J.P. Roberts in 1876, who established the first store. The area was formerly platted in 1878 and by the year 1900, it was considered the third most important city in Klamath County. 
Daily Mail arrived by stagecoach, and the area was known for producing cattle, horses, grain, hay, fruits, and vegetables. Today, it is still an agricultural community with large areas of alfalfa, cattle, and dairy farm use. The Lost River runs near downtown, where the Bonanza Big Springs are located. Over the years, there have been many controversies as low water levels have caused groundwater contamination through the springs and has caused conflict over water use, endangered and struggling fish species, and farming. Now, on to our story. All right, this one effed me up. I have a sweet little eight-year-old boy of my own, so although every case I've ever researched has touched me in one way or another, and I have sympathy for every victim and their families and friends, this one just made my heart ache. On December 5th, 1998, Derek Ingebretson was eight years old when he joined his father and grandfather on the search for a Christmas tree in Klamath County, Oregon, specifically the Rocky Point area of the Wyneema National Forest. Derek's parents, Lori and Robert, had always chopped down their own tree, but this year Lori had convinced Robert of the convenience of having an artificial tree. But when a disabled neighbor was asking for a live tree, Robert did not hesitate to provide one. Robert packed up the necessities along with his 64-year-old father, Bob, and his 8-year-old son, Derek, for a Christmas tree hunt. The trio set out for Pelican Butte in the Wainema National Forest, about 30 miles from Klamath Falls. It was late in the day when they arrived, around 2 p.m., so Robert promised his father he would make it quick since it would be getting dark within hours. He wiggled his son into his blue snowsuit and told Derek to stay close to his grandfather. But Derek quickly grew bored and began chopping at trees with his mini hatchet his dad had given him and was asking his grandpa if he could go catch up with his dad. After multiple requests, Bob relented. After all, Derek grew up in those woods. His mom had packed him to a bear hunt at just a week old, and from there, he grew up hunting mushrooms with his parents in the area. But at around 3 p.m., Robert and Bob met up again, both asking, where's Derek? Robert became enraged and started running up the hill, yelling Derek's name. Within an hour, darkness was upon the mountain, and Robert flagged down a passing car and begged them to call 911 when they reached an area with a phone. Remember, kids, we're in 1998. Cell phones were not the norm. Help did arrive eventually. Law enforcement searched the area and discovered a crude snow shelter made from branches beneath a few fallen logs. Small footprints were found in the snow that led around in a loop from where he was last seen up to a clearing near the road where a child's snow angel was discovered and printed in the snowy ground. The little footprints then led to the nearby roadway, not further into the woods, which worried Robert. But working in his favor, Derek grew up in the mountains and was used to walking long distances in steep terrain. In fact, he had walked upward of 20 miles in steep terrain recently with his parents. At the time of his disappearance, Derek was wearing a blue snowsuit and had a small hatchet with him. They also found evidence that he had attempted to start a fire as small pieces of chopped wood were also found nearby. But unfortunately, later that evening, a blizzard hit and wiped away all evidence along with any chance of finding Derek. Also, in another unfortunate turn of events, a snowplow had covered what remained of the snow angel and tracks near the road. But of course, his parents did not give up, and over the next two weeks, massive search efforts ensued. Lori started a fire that she kept burning for weeks while living out of a borrowed travel trailer. 
She hoped that the fire would cause Derek to approach if he saw it, and she had been so sleep-deprived, she recalled hallucinating that Derek came running and waving at her. They camped in the area, and more than 10,000 hours were spent by hundreds of volunteers to find Derek. Search dogs, as well as a Civil Air Patrol plane and Air Force Reserve helicopter were also deployed. Robert searched through snowdrifts, even when a cut on his leg turned black with frostbite, and he began to exhibit signs of pneumonia. Early in the investigation, a witness claimed to have seen an unidentified man struggling with a young boy in the area where Derek had disappeared. Also the same day, an unidentified man driving a two-door Honda was asking passerbys for directions in the forest. Unfortunately, by December 18th, 13 days into the search, the weather conditions became too unsafe for anyone to travel through the area, which slowed down the search considerably. But it didn't deter Derek's parents, Lori and Robert, who tearfully addressed the volunteers, saying, go home and take care of your families. Even after all of the authorities and volunteers had dwindled, the two of them searched through the snow for months, sometimes on their hands and knees. However, in February of 1999, the Ingebrigtsens fell behind on their mortgage, and Robert was forced to return to his job at the Klamath Falls Mill, where he had worked for 18 years. But the couple continued to search the area every single weekend for two years looking for their son. They walked the area hundreds of times, and not once did they encounter any trace of their son after the day he went missing. They kept a map in their glove compartment and would mark off the areas that they had thoroughly searched. They were told over and over again that their son had likely succumbed to the elements and that his remains would never be found because they had likely been scattered by animals. But their gut instinct told them otherwise. So they went back to the mountain over and over again because it was the only thing they could do. In fact, within hours of the disappearance, Lori had told her mother that Derek was gone. Her mother had tried to reassure her that they would find him. He was just lost in the woods. But Lori cried and said no, she felt he wasn't there anymore. After years of endless searching, some members of the neighboring communities were not happy with the Ingebretsons. The searching parents had criticized both the popular county sheriff and the search and rescue coordinator for being slow to the scene on the night of Derek's disappearance. Which, I live in a small town, I can see both sides' frustration, but in one record I found, it stated that it took five hours to get the search team mobilized from the 911 call because the coordinator was on the fence about disrupting their annual Christmas banquet. So, I gotta side with the Ingerbretsons on that point. But when they voiced their opinion about it, friends of the search team wrote negative letters about the Ingebretsons to the local newspaper. My Gen Z listeners probably won't understand the entertainment value that a small-town newspaper letter to the editor section used to bring me. But I digress. The search and rescue group's leader was later quoted in the paper after the Ingebretsons had aired their grievances as saying, quote, we didn't lose the kid. Uh, so that's another point for the Ingebretsons. Aside from the drama with authorities, they weren't treated much better by the small-town rumor mill. At one point, Lori was standing behind two women in line at Kmart who were discussing the disappearance. One woman told the other, I heard the dad killed him, while the other replied she thought the mother was involved. This caused the couple even more pain. They retreated into their own world in their home. Their home was about five miles north of Bonanza, which is about a half-hour drive from Klamath Falls. Robert couldn't speak to his father anymore, as he blamed himself for not being able to find Derek, but blamed his dad for losing him. The family dynamic was also strained on Lori's side of the family. When her father found out what had happened, 
The distraught grandfather punched Robert's dad in the face. But through it all, Lori and Robert never turned on each other, as they were the only ones who fully understood the loss. But it is said that the two did drift apart from their two surviving children, who were 18 and 15 at the time of the disappearance, and both kids began to struggle. After Robert had taken so much time off of work, and the couple spent thousands of dollars in the search on everything from psychics to a boat to search nearby lakes, the couple eventually resorted to filing for bankruptcy. The traditions of the family, such as hunting and trips to the beach, had ended. The artificial Christmas tree the family had set up for Christmas of 1998 remained up for three years with Derek's presence surrounding it. As far as developments in the case as time went on, on September 24, 1999, graffiti was discovered in the bathroom at the Sage Hen Rest Area, 300 miles south of Portland, that law enforcement stated was referential to Derek's disappearance. His parents drove to view it for themselves, and his mother stated that she believed it was a big, sick joke, which was substantiated by an FBI profiler. The full contents of the graffiti have never been made public. There were two other false alarms in the early years. A boy named Derek was found in Texas under unusual circumstances and did bear resemblance, but turned out not to be their Derek. Also, a bone discovered in Pelican Butte in the year 2000 turned out to be from a deer after three days of agonizing by the parents. A year and a half after the disappearance, a horrific incident shook Oregon. Frank J. Milligan was a 31-year-old state youth authority worker at the time when he approached a 10-year-old boy at a Dallas park in July of 2000. He offered the boy $100 to mow his lawn, and the boy agreed, but when the boy reached Milligan's car, he asked him a horrifying question. Do you want to live or die? The boy's hands were then bound with duct tape, and he took him to a dirt road north of Salem where he sexually assaulted, and I'm not going to go into the horrible details, but I will say he brutally used three different methods to make sure the boy was dead and left him on the side of that dirt road. Miraculously, the boy woke up drenched in blood, but was able to walk to a road where a good Samaritan stopped to help him, and he survived. During the time of this event, Milligan was out on bail after being accused of a 1997 sexual assault on an 11-year-old boy in Seaside. Detectives were able to track him down, and he was sentenced to 36 years for both cases. Back at the Ingebretsons, a handwritten letter arrived in 2001, stating, I know who took your son. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And now back to the story. Back at the Ingebretsons, a handwritten letter arrived in 2001, stating, I know who took your son. The letter came from Frank Milligan's cellmate, who wrote the letter to both Derek's family and the police, saying that Milligan had confessed to abducting and killing Derek. An Oregon State Police detective, who had investigated the Dallas case alongside other detectives, confronted Milligan, and the pedophile confessed to killing Derek and agreed to lead them to the boy's body. Investigators, alongside Derek's parents, gathered at the entrance to Silver Falls State Park, southeast of Salem. The FBI used ground-penetrating radar to scan for the remains, but after several days, the search did not turn up any evidence of Derek. But a Marion County assistant district attorney told the Ingebretsons that Milligan had agreed to plead guilty if the death penalty was off the table. The parents made the heart-wrenching decision to sign off on the deal. But when faced with the plea deal paperwork a few days later, Milligan pushed the pin away. 
He was 33 at the time, currently serving a 36-year sentence. So if he did not sign this deal, he could possibly walk free someday. In 2019, a Supreme Court ruling gave new life to a $5.5 million lawsuit that accused the Oregon Youth Authority of ignoring rampant sexual abuse of children and teens in state custody. It reversed a ruling from 2016 by a Marion County Circuit Court judge. The lawsuit stemmed from the Youth Authority's employment of Frank Milligan and states that the general culture accepted the abuse of minors. Milligan was a group life coordinator at the McLaren Youth Correctional Facility in Woodburn starting in 1997 through the time of his arrest for his horrific crimes against children. One of his victims described his abuse as a 15-year-old boy at McLaren Youth Correctional Facility. He was violently subdued and sexually abused by Milligan on multiple occasions and was threatened with more violence and loss of privileges such as communication with his family. But the problem was not only Milligan. The victim states that the culture of looking the other way and not asking questions created the environment where it was possible for Milligan to sexually assault the juvenile inmates. But he was not the only predator roaming Oregon Youth Authority. Michael Boyles was a probation officer who was arrested on more than 90 counts of sodomy, abuse, and misconduct involving children under the supervision of the Youth Authority. Boyles was accused of abusing children for more than a decade, even after a victim's grandmother wrote more than a dozen letters to officials in 1995, expressing fear that her grandson was being abused. Boyles was eventually convicted and sentenced to 80 years in 2005. I could not find any more information on the lawsuit, aside from the reversal by the Supreme Court in 2019, but I did come across another lawsuit filed in 2020 this time against the girls' juvenile facility run by Oregon Youth Authority, alleging misconduct in much more recent years. After Milligan had recanted his confession, the Ingebretsons struggled with two different emotions. They felt relief that the body wasn't found, meaning they could still keep hope alive, but on the other hand, they still had no idea what happened to Derek. Lori struggled with depression and was irritable and lost her temper for seemingly no reason. So she asked to take some time off from the Klamath Falls craft store she had worked at for 11 years. She attempted to go back, but after a conflict with a coworker, she decided it was time to quit. Things just kept getting worse for the couple, who, with the loss of Lori's paycheck, began to spiral financially and ended up needing to sell their dream home. They had grown so distant with their two living children that at one point they couldn't find their daughter, who was an adult by this time, and her phone had been disconnected. Since they were so distant, it took several days to finally connect with her, and it scared them badly as they frantically searched for her. But this was a turning point for the family, as for the first time in years, they were thinking about something other than their lost son. The thought that they could lose their two living children sparked a shift in their focus from the past and toward the future of their family. They were able to rent a house in Klamath Falls, a place big enough for their now adult children to stay and they took their son to the ocean for the first time since Derek's disappearance. They continued to bond as a family and went on to become grandparents, though their missing son is never far from their minds. This episode will be released just shy of the 23rd anniversary of the disappearance. Derek Ingebretson is described as a Caucasian male, 8-year-old child with brown hair, hazel eyes, and was 4 foot 6 and 85 pounds at the time of his disappearance in 1998. He would be 31 years old today. 
He has a cowlick and a scar from a dog bite between his nostrils and under his nose. His nickname is Bear Boy due to his love of the outdoors. Derek's picture, along with an age progression, will be posted on my socials with the post for this episode. If you have any info on Derek Ingebretson, please contact the Klamath County Sheriff's Office at 541-883-5130. And that is the disappearance of Derek Ingebretson. Sources for this story include a blog about the case, which you can find at DerekIngebretson.blogspot.com, an article in the Statesman Journal regarding a lawsuit against the Oregon Youth Authority, and a very interesting post over at ThatOregonLife.com about 14 Oregon cold cases. All of my sources are listed in the show notes and at my website, UpperLeftPodcast.com. This week's wine that I paired with my true crime is Ponzi Vineyard's Pinot Blanc. Out of the Aurora Vineyard that was planted in 1991 in the Willamette Valley, this Pinot Blanc has classic aromas of powdered sugar, chamomile, and candied lemon peel that meet notes of brioche, honeycomb, and key lime, with hints of slight pineapple and nectarine, along with poached pear, cinnamon, and white peppercorn. The long finish is laced with juicy acidity, and yes, it tastes as fancy as it sounds. Cheers, and thanks for listening. Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at upperleftcornerpod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.